Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash I am divine 2022. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Hi, I'm Bishop Heather Shea of United Palace of Spiritual Arts, here with my co-host, Reverend Dr. Jose Roman. On today's episode, we will explore Judaism with Rabbi Guy Austrian of the Fort Tyron Jewish Center. Thank you for joining us. Now, what what inspired you to become a rabbi? What inspired you to become a teacher in your community? Well, it it, it, uh, it wasn't always in the plans for me. I uh, spent much of my teens and twenties being non traditionally observant, um, not necessarily interested in my Jewish identity. And it's something that I, I came back to as a, as a young adult, as I um, came to become more thoughtful about and more rooted in where I come from and where I'm going. And for me, a lot of that comes from the fact that all four of my grandparents survived the Holocaust. And I grew up with those stories. I, they were the kind of survivors who do who do talk about it. And um, I learned and absorbed from an early age both the terror of those times and also that it didn't come out of nowhere. Um, that the Holocaust was something that that emerged over a years long period of attacks on civil rights and dehumanization of Jews and other minority groups. And so I learned that that's not inevitable. And I came to feel it as my, a, a personal mission of mine to, um, to build strong Jewish communities. And but th- that's not just about preserving the past or, or some kind of golden era or some kind of rigid vision of what Judaism you know, was once and shall ever be, but building strong Jewish communities means building living Jewish communities in the real world, in real time. And uh, for me, that also means building partnerships with other faith communities and other ethnic communities and minority communities, because I think that Jews are safer in societies that are democratic, that are just, that are equitable, that are open and tolerant, and not just tolerant, but embracing of plurality and, and multiplicity. And there are lots of groups that are, are interested in having that kind of society in the United States and elsewhere. Um, so, so I've always looked to pursue those partnerships and to bring Jewish communities into those partnerships. Um, I eventually decided to pursue that as a rabbi, and as a congregational rabbi, because um, 
working with congregations is just for me the most beautiful integrated and holistic way to to be a spiritual community and to practice a religious path certainly not the only one it happens to suit my temperament and my skill set um, but something i enjoy about it is that we really get to understand judaism as a way of life right and that we pray together we look out for each other we teach one another about our tradition we evolve our tradition we raise our children together we um celebrate holidays uh we mourn together we we have joy together and we also pursue a more just society together and and all of those things are are part of a whole and it's congregations where um you get to do a little of everything and i have loved that well thank you it's it's been wonderful getting to know you we we met each other through the interfaith coalition in washington heights and washington heights certainly is a is a unique marketplace with a lot of different cultures uh something that we somewhat share uh my grandfather was a survivor of the holocaust mm-hmm. sadly his four brothers and their families were not mm-hmm. so i have a heritage and a sensitivity to the past and concerned about like you not repeating it and seeing how that doesn't happen to to all people and that's a lot of the work that we're doing collectively uh in the heights and also through this program we're actually reaching out around the world so so thank you very much i just it, wonderful introduction for you T- tell us about um fort tyron jewish center um you, you, it's called itself not affiliated with a denomination and it was and remains an independent congregation proud to be a religion home for people of various jewish backgrounds say a little bit more about that which i, I find that very intriguing sure i'll i'll speak a bit about our congregation in particular and and then a little more broadly um so the fort tyron jewish center has been rooted in Washington Heights since its founding in 1938 by a diverse group of Jews some of whom were refugees from Nazi Germany and they had a, a kind of pluralistic and open idea about the kind of local Jewish community that they wanted to build and they uh being a very much an immigrant neighborhood and immigrant congregation even at that time a mix of Im- native american native born americans and immigrant and refugee Jews our congregation has always been committed to that vision of this neighborhood as a haven for immigrants refugees and asylum seekers um that is part of our congregational story and of course our neighborhood story um the congregation from its founding did not belong to any denomination they just were independent minded uh they did have for many decades only orthodox rabbis orthodox prayer books um men and women sat together but only men were allowed on the bima which is the um you know the raised area for performance of ritual uh roles and only men could participate in those that didn't change actually until 2007 uh and since then the congregation has uh, embraced gender egalitarianism Uh, for people of all gender identities and sexual orientations as well as maintains a very traditional liturgical ritual um with a strong emphasis on traditional observance 
of mitzvot, that is of, of commandments or of Jewish spiritual imperatives, including Shabbat, the Sabbath, kashrut, the dietary laws, and um, and modes of doing tefillah, which is prayer. Uh, so we now call ourselves an independent, traditional, egalitarian congregation. Um, we see ourselves as drawing on strengths of various streams and movements within the within Judaism and within the Jewish people, also pursuing a particular path, which again is that that traditional egalitarianism, which uh, it's important to say, we don't see traditional observance of the mitzvot, of the commandments and gender egalitarianism as things that are in opposition or intention or, you know, one being a deviation from the other. We see egalitarianism as as an unfolding of the tradition, really as an expansion of traditional Judaism to, uh, to expand its circle to include an ever wider number of Jews, both in ritual rites and leadership roles, but also in ritual obligation and um, commandedness. So it's been an interesting path and a special one. Uh, and How remarkable. And a, a challenging one, also a living one that's great to be a part of. And how important right now and, and at any time. Jose? Um, Rabbi, when, um, when folks speak of, of, of Judaism um, as a tradition, as a faith, uh, we hear words like reform, renewal, orthodox, conservative, ascetic, um, to express and, uh, as expressions, different expressions, if you will, of the Jewish faith and the Jewish tradition. Can, can you tell us what these terms mean and, and, and how these expressions really are defined? Sure. And thanks for the question. I think it's important for, uh, for folks to understand that there is no one Judaism. There are many different streams and movements. It's a historically evolving and living tradition, um, which has always had diversity within it. Denominations as we know them are really a very modern Western um, formation that that didn't exist until the mid-1800s in Germany for Jews. And in a nutshell, the story is that uh, a number of rabbis at that time and place had a series of conferences, which they referred to as reform. And they were interested in things like the incorporation of their vernacular, which was German, um, you know, and questioning other kind of tenets of the faith. But... Um, you know, incorporating modern scholarship and things like that. And, and that wasn't a denomination. It was a series of conferences. Uh, in reaction to that, there was a kind of traditionalist reaction, which came to take the, the shape of what we now call orthodoxy, which itself has many, many different um, streams and movements within it. When we have, once you had reform in orthodoxy, uh, another group grew up which said, um, right, well, they, yes, the, the tradition has historically unfolded. That isn't new. Um, there has always been that kind of reform, if that's what you want to call it, or, or evolution. Um, you know, but, you know, but some folks go take it too far, let's say. And, and that kind of historicist school of Judaism uh, eventually evolved into what's now called conservative. Um, there, there are other 
denominations now. One is called Reconstructionist, one is called Renewal. And that's the basic story. But it's really a kind of institutionalization that tracks with the way that religion lives in Western Christian societies in some ways. Hasidism is a, is a phenomenon of its own. Um, Hasidism started in the 1700s, mostly in Eastern Europe, as a kind of popular, populist, spiritual revival movement among Jews, which was partly in reaction to an emphasis on Talmud study and text study in yeshivas, and was partly about bringing mystical ideas, Kabbalistic ideas, and popular spirituality, a strong emphasis on prayer, um, a strong emphasis on experience of the divine rather than study of the divine. Those two things are not really necessarily uh, a dichotomy, but um, it was, a, it was a, a popular movement. And over time, it took on its own institutional forms and uh, became dyna- dynastic in which uh, rebbies who were rabbis that were more like guru figures um, would pass on leadership of their, of their group to sons or, or students. And it, it took its own course from there. Today, Hasidism, I would say, has two main streams. Uh, one is what we would say falls under orthodoxy. It is not egalitarian. Um, and, uh, and then the other is a kind of liberal Hasidism, sometimes referred to as neo-Hasidism, uh, in which many of the, the approaches and, and the mysticism and the kind of popular experiential spirituality um, has been brought into an egalitarian framework uh, among liberal Jews. So please correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially what you're saying seems to be that Judaism is much like many other very long enduring religious traditions in that it has a richness of spiritualities and spiritual expression, philosophy, theology, and even historical expressions. Am I correct? Yes. Excellent. Thank you. With all that, the, the, one of the concepts of Judaism is the concept of, of one God. Uh, I'd like you to talk about one God, your, your, your perception of one God. And also, just curious, with some of those different version, variations, is one God still core to the Jewish tradition or traditions base? Yes, absolutely. It's, um, it's, it's so fundamental that it's, it's almost hard to speak about uh, and all streams and movements of Judaism embrace that oneness as, as, as a fundamental assumption. Right? But as always, we have different ideas about uh, the path to the one and what that oneness means for us and what is the right way to, to respond to the oneness that is the ground of all being. Many, um, many scholars um, would say that, um, that Moses um, constituted, if you will, the, the founding voice of the Jewish tradition. Um, tell us a little bit about Moses and his place um, in Jewish history. Well, Moses is an incredibly complex figure as he's portrayed in 
the Torah, of course, it's hard to summarize. And in his story, he has different stages of his life in which different aspects of his personality and his leadership are, are more prominent than others or, or evolving themselves as a flawed leader, like all of the um, founders of our spiritual path as depicted in the Torah. Um, I think one way that he, one thing that's important about Moses is that he's referred to later, right, in the post-biblical period as Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe our rabbi, right? And so rabbinic Judaism, which is actually Judaism as we know it, and we can, we can talk about that some more, rabbinic Judaism sees Moshe not just as the, you know, a prophet or a, or a priest figure or a communal leader, but as a rabbi, as a teacher, right? As someone who tried to convey to the people to the best of his ability, what is God's will for us to, for how to live an ethical, a sacred, and a holy life in this world, right? And the Torah is a foundational guide for how to do that. And so Moshe is seen as the teacher of the Torah, the first one in that way. But, it, but in a sense, please correct me again, um, if, if you see it differently, but there seems to be within, within, within the history a sense that he, that is Moses, had a unique experience and relationship to, if you will, that, that ground of being, to what we all um, in the Abrahamic traditions refer to as God. He had some extraordinary experience um, of God. Is, is that your understanding? Yes, that's the traditional understanding that um, is expressed in the Book of Numbers, that right, of all the prophets, Moshe is the one whom God speaks to face to face. We say that even the, the greatest of the other prophets um, were able to perceive God only through a, a darkened lens or a, or a clouded lens, and Moshe was the only one who could perceive God through that, through a, a clear and a transparent lens. Um, but of course, Moshe's own experience of God is also limited and mediated. The, the well-known scene on Mount Sinai where Moshe pleads with God for a more intimate revelation of God's self, and God says, but you're still human, and you can't perceive me in my fullness and live. And Moshe has to hide in the cleft of the rock and, and have only a partial theophany, a partial appearance of the divine being. Um, right? I think that's not necessarily need to be analyzed literally, but I think Moshe in that sense is one of the paradigmatic spiritual seekers, right? Who is active in the world, right? Um, very important. He has his mountaintop moments, right? But mostly Moshe is deeply immersed in the life of the Jewish people and in politics, right? As, as a younger man, he's, uh, he's someone who gives up his, his privilege as a prince of Egypt and identifies with his people and liberates the oppressed from a structure of oppression that had seemed to be eternal, divinely authorized, and, um, and immovable. And he brought them out of that. Um, he, he engages in communal and national leadership at the highest levels and in the most challenging times. Right. 
At the same time, he's an individual human being with his own spiritual longings, right? And his own doubts and questions, his own deep desire for a relationship with God. I think that's very powerful and, and very, um, right, that we don't look to Moses only as this kind of extraordinary, exceptional um, person who we can't model from. We also look to him as, as a paradigmatic seeker whom all of us have what to learn from. Absolutely. You, you mentioned the term prophet and that he was one of the prophets. How does, how, what, what are prophets... And how does Moses fit into to that realm? Well, one way to think about prophecy is that it's someone whom God speaks to, right? And so by that definition, Moshe is seen as one of the prophets, but certainly not, not the first and not the last. Um, but I, I think something important about prophet is that term in popular usage, we think of it as Either someone who is like seeing the future, predicting the future, this is what's going to happen, that's a prophecy. Um, but I, I, I don't think that actually applies to many of the prophets as we have them in the Bible or, or in other sacred texts. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, one of the great 20th century Jewish philosophers and leaders, um, spoke about a prophet as someone who sees us as God sees us, just catches a glimpse, even briefly, of how God sees us and tries to convey that to us. So sometimes that takes the form of speaking truth to power and letting us know about our hypocrisy and our shortcomings and, um, Really letting us know that, that um, God sees and God isn't fooled <laughs> by, our, uh, by our rationalizations and our um, escapism. But it also often means that prophets are often speaking to us about God's love for us and comforting us, consoling us, reassuring us that our covenantal relationship with God has not been broken, cannot be broken. Um, and so often you see that in the prophets, this kind of back and forth between the love and the reassurance and the, the, the rebuke and the calling to account, they go together. That's lovely. That's lovely. I've never heard the definition quite put that beautifully. So, 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 so thank you. Tell me also about the term, the chosen people, because I grew up hearing that term a lot, the chosen people. What is, what does that mean? Sure. Um, I think it's a term that, that is easily misunderstood both by Jews and Gentiles, and so I appreciate you asking about it. I think what it means is that the Jewish people, we see ourselves as having a special relationship with God. Um, not the only relationship by any means, but a, a particular one. It's a particular path. Um, it's our path. It, we understand it as a covenantal relationship. Um, in which both we and the Holy One have obligations to one another, um, to love one another, to stick by each other through good times and bad. Um, we see ourselves, part, part of our chosenness 
um, for the Jewish people has been to receive the Torah, um, to receive mitzvot, uh, commandments, or as I sometimes translate, um, Jewish spiritual imperatives. And some of those mitzvot are ones that we share in common with, with other religious paths who also you know, feel compelled by those principles, but some of them are particular to us. Um, how we understand Shabbat, the Sabbath, for example. But those are things that are particular to the path that we understand God as having called us to. It's not a better path, it's a particular one. For us, it's the best one, right? But um, that, that we think suits us as a people, uh, whether we like it or not. And <clears throat> Prophet Amos tells us that God has chosen other people and brought other people out from other lands. And, uh, you know, we know that everyone has their path in their relationship. Um, but I think that it's a mistake to totally give up on the concept of chosenness because I think, as I said, we are chosen to a, our particular path. And it's an important one. One of my teachers is Rabbi Marsha Prager. And she once put it in the sense that Judaism and Jews are essential to the religious ecosystem of humanity, right? We're part of, an, we're part of that religious ecosystem. Not the only part, not the most important part, certainly not the biggest part. But there is something essential about us and our path, um, that if God forbid it were to, to be snuffed out, the human religious ecosystem would be not only deeply impoverished, but maybe couldn't stand. Um, one of the, um, I've, I've, one, I've heard um, historians at times say that part of what's kept the Jewish people alive is that they are, they are the people of the story. That the idea of story, the idea of, is so central. Um, to, to the Jewish identity and story specifically as, as, as it's written. Um, in other words, the Jewish scripture um, is so important. Um, so let's, let's explore that a little bit. What, let's begin with, with the beginning. What is Torah? It, it's a question that's hard to answer. So obviously, <clears throat> there's the five books of Moses, which we refer to as the Torah. Um, it's a part of the Bible. Uh, there's the Torah scroll, right, which is written on animal parchment, sewn on sheets, sewn together with uh, with thread that comes from tendons, is written on with a special kind of black ink, and is rolled up on wooden spindles, which are called atze chayim, which means trees of life. Hi, I'm Bishop Heather Shea. We will return in a minute with Rabbi Guy Austrian. Thank you for listening. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back. We now return to our open heart conversation on Judaism. So that's the Torah scroll, right? But beyond that, we, some, we, in, we in English, we refer to Torah without the article the in front of it. Torah, broadly speaking, is 
the ongoing Jewish conversation about the revelation of God's will for how we might live in this world. Um, so we speak about Torah as, uh, it's not abstract because it's a real conversation, but it, it goes well beyond the five books of Moses and it is always unfolding through the Talmud and other parts of rabbinic literature, through um, the Zohar and mystical texts all the way through to, um, you know, the sermon that a rabbi gave in the synagogue the other day. So in a that's sense, all Torah. That's interesting because, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but as, as, as our listeners and our viewers are experiencing you as a teacher within the tradition, are we experiencing, in essence, Torah? Well, we would say you're hearing a little bit of my Torah. Um, and it's very important to say that my Torah is very uh, situated in my identity and experience. Now, you, you've brought me on as, you know, a kind of expert, and I'm authorized by by my rabbis to be a teacher and to speak on these subjects. But you know, I'm I'm only who I am. I'm 46. Um, I immigrated from Israel as, as a baby with my Israeli-born parents. I grew up in suburban Cleveland. Um, I'm usually located as white in the racial system of, uh, of the United States. I'm um, a queer man married to a woman raising a family in New York City. I was ordained in the conservative denomination. Um, and something that's really important is that everyone has Torah, right? We say that, uh, we say there, there are a lot of Jewish teachings that speak about there being 70 faces of Torah, um, or that the number of letters in the Torah corresponds to the number of Jews at any given time, such that Torah cannot be complete without all of those faces, without all of those people without all of those readers, right? If there's anyone who's not reading the Torah and sharing their understanding of it, then the Torah is incomplete. Part of the great project of contemporary Judaism has been to, um, to expand the readership of the Torah and the teaching of Torah to people uh, who are quite different than me. Women, people of all genders, people of all sexual orientations and identities. Um, I mean, there have always been, I'm also an Ashkenazi Jew, meaning I come from a particular culture and cultural and liturgical uh, and legal tradition, um, mostly rooted in Europe, but there's Sephardi, Mizrahi, there's Ethiopian, the Yemenite, there's many more. And um, so it's really, un all of that is a way of saying, it's important to understand that what I'm sharing is my Torah. From my understanding. Right. But you really, it's so incomplete. And that I can't actually sense. speak for everyone. That right. would be a ridiculous on its face. And, and actually counter to our understanding of Torah. And that's an important statement. It's important for, our re for all our listeners and our, and our viewers to understand that. The, the, the richness and the complexity. But at least you're giving us, as you said, one perspective. And an important one. What is Talmud? Well, there's the Talmud is the core foundational text of rabbinic Judaism. So um, the rabbi, when we say the rabbis, 
we usually mean the rabbis of the first few centuries of the common era, um, who were the authors and editors um, and the sources of the teachings contained in the Talmud. There are actually two Talmuds. Um, one's called the Babylonian Talmud. That's what we usually mean when we say the Talmud. It's also a version that was edited and codified in the land of Israel. It's called the Jerusalem Talmud. The rabbis tell an origin stories about themselves, uh, which in a nutshell is something like this. When the Romans occupied the land of Israel, what the Romans called Palestine, uh, in the first decades of the first century of the Common Era and laid siege to Jerusalem, the small circle of the earliest rabbis that were active in Jerusalem at the time they were led by a man named Yochanan ben Zakkai, who had himself smuggled in a coffin out of the city walls into the camp of the general Vespasian. Because Yochanan ben Zakkai saw the writing on the wall that Jerusalem would be destroyed, that the temple would be destroyed, he was able to persuade, to gain an audience with Vespasian and to say, Famous words, give me Yavne and its sages. What is Yavne? It's like a little town closer uh, to the coast in the land of Israel. And Yochanan ben Zakkai, according to the story, uh, founded a school of Torah there with his disciples. And they raised up more disciples and grew and built the rabbinic community in the absence of the temple and the priesthood. Around the year 200, a a Jewish rabbinic and communal leader named Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, in English, Judah the Prince. Prince means that he was also a communal leader as well as a religious leader. Decided to write down traditions of Torah that until then had only been passed on orally. So we speak about the written Torah, that's the five books of Moses, and other parts of the Bible, and the Oral Torah, which is also part of Revelation. It had not been written down until about the year 200. That compilation of halakha, of Jewish law or Jewish practices and life ways, is called the Mishnah, the Mishnah, which means something like the teaching. Okay? And it's organized into 60-some different areas of Jewish life and practice. Some of it was probably centuries old in terms of describing how Jews actually lived according to their understanding of the Torah. And some of it was probably more innovative and prescriptive about how to live in the absence of the temple and the priesthood. So now the Talmud. It's often said incorrectly that the Talmud is a commentary on the Torah. It's not the case. The Talmud is a commentary on the Mishnah. In other words, as soon as the Mishnah gets codified around the year 200, all the rabbis and their students are like, well, what does that mean, right? It says here that Rabbi so-and-so said that, you know, on the Sabbath, you should do this. Well, what did he mean? What, you know, what if this was the case or that were the case? Um, and this language is ambiguous, and what are we really supposed to mean by it? And so the conversation just continues for more generations. Eventually, three, four hundred years later, 
those conversations and additional teachings, as well as stories, as well as exegesis of biblical verses, jokes, recipes, like it's really a cornucopia, gets compiled into the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud. As soon as those are closed, more rabbis and their students are studying those texts and saying, well, what does that mean? That doesn't really cover my life, right? Or this other situation that I had. In fact, let me tell you a story that, that undermines the, the, the whole principle that we just learned, right? And so that suggests that um, specific circumstances might lead to a different legal conclusion. Uh, so two things are important about that. One is that the conversation is still going. Judaism has never been closed. Um, there's no contemporary Judaism that is anything like Judaism was in the past because conversation goes on. Um, the interpretation, the discussion, the learning from our life experience, the discerning from our life and dialogue with our sacred texts and teachings, how to live in our time, in our place, what God might want from us now, here. The second thing that's important about that is there's, there's an, there is an anti-Semitic polemic which comes from Christianity that uh, Judaism is a legalistic and a hair-splitting tradition. Right? What does that mean? That is a very nasty way of describing what for us is a never-ending conversation about how every moment and every circumstance is different. Every person's life and experience, every context that we find ourselves in is slightly different from another, right? And so part of the Jewish path and practice is that, that ongoing discernment. There's always another case. There's always a nuance which calls on us to, to think deeply and feel, deep, feel our way through what God might want from us, right? And, and what is sometimes thought of as a legal tradition is really a tradition of practice, right? There's a lot of theology in Judaism, but, but where we kind of put a lot of our emphasis on is the, is the practical expression or manifestation or consequence of that theology, of that understanding of the Holy Blessed One and God's desire for us to live in alignment, right? So, so practice is what do you do? How should you live? What should you do right now in this situation? That's what we call halacha, which is poorly translated as Jewish law, but really is, a, is Jewish practice. It's interesting. My, my next question was going to be, um, what is the place of Jewish scriptures um, in the life of a, of a observant Jewish person? And in a sense, you, you really have described it. It's, it's, it's really an avenue to, to, part, to continuously participate in that dialogue, which is a continuous exploration of, you know, how to live a, a, a full, holy human life. Yes, very much. Um, <clears throat> so 
the place of Jewish scripture certainly is partly a guide to living a sacred life. Um, there's a couple other aspects I would, I would say. One is the study of those scriptures, and not just of scripture like the Bible or the Talmud, but of the whole evolving conversation that I've been trying to describe, right? Study of Torah writ large. Um, study is a way in which we understand ourselves as experiencing God and uncovering God's ongoing revelation. Uh, so humans have a very empowered and active role in Judaism in interpreting and unfolding, um, being partners with God in the unfolding of revelation and even really of the work of creating the world, which didn't end after seven days. Scripture, as you know, for sure, in, in every uh, path is also what I would call sacred master narratives to live inside of, right? Certainly it's part of raising children inside of those what we call like stories, right? But, but they're sacred master narratives that help us to make sense of the world and our place in it that resonate with our experiences that, that we find ourselves aligned with or we differentiate ourselves from. Um, it's a source of language to inspire us to understand, understand ourselves by. Um, so we have our sacred master narratives and other paths have theirs, but I think that humans need that on a, on a very deep level. When you, when you reflect on many of those master narratives, when you reflect on the Jewish tradition, what would you say are some of the, the most important teachings? What are some of the most important tenets um, that, that are central to the Jewish faith? We, we spoke a little bit about oneness. We spoke a little bit, bit about mitzvah, which is commandedness, right? The way that obligation and responsibility um, is, is a, a core part of the Jewish religious path and understanding. Um, we talked about halacha, which is the ongoing, the un, ongoing conversation of mitzvot, of, the, of commandments, spiritual imperatives, how to actually live them out in different situations, um, how to elevate the mundane to the sacred, how to experience God's presence, how to become better, more ethical, compassionate individuals, how to build stronger, more ethical and compassionate communities. That's, that's mitzvah and halacha. Um, we spoke a little bit about the human role in ongoing revelation and its interpretation. I think that's a really important part of Jewish self-understanding. And one more that I would, would point to um, is the idea that a better world is possible. I think, so this is sometimes referred to as messianism, but it's, it's like bigger than that. It's the idea that, that there is history, that time doesn't only move in cycles, but it also spirals forward. And so what we think of as spiritual evolution, historical evolution, progress, God willing, right? maybe not linear, maybe that's not always constant or consistent, but we, the idea that we are going somewhere, that there is a direction to all of this, mm-hmm. I think is a core Jewish idea. And, and not just that we're going somewhere, but that we're going somewhere better. And we have an active role to play in getting there. Right? That, that God's will 
is not just about what we do in our daily, weekly, monthly, yearly lives, but about the over the direction of the overall human project, which is a direction towards love, towards empathy, towards compassion, towards justice, towards life, the ability to live, okay? to the ability for each human being to manifest themselves as a vehicle of the divine presence in this material world. Um, and I think that the divine being or energy in the universe inclines us that way, right. wants us to go that way. A better world is possible, and we can head that direction. Your, your message is very, is very timely right now, given, given where we are in the world. And also, uh, right now, as we are recording this session, it's, it's fall, and it's beginning of times of, of many high holy days. Tell us about some of the Jewish traditions that people may have heard of or maybe ha- haven't heard of in the holidays. The, about the high holidays that are coming up? Okay, uh, so the two main ones are Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Uh, in brief, Rosh Hashanah means the head of the year. It's the new year of the Jewish calendar. Um, but on a, a broader and deeper level, it is understood as the anniversary of the creation of the universe. So it is a time for recognizing creation recognizing our createdness, recognizing the ongoing active presence of the creator whose partner we are privileged to be in the ongoing creation of the world. And um, understanding that that creator is one, that the creator's oneness is the basis for God's sovereignty over all of humanity and over all of creation. And that we need to remind ourselves, what does that mean for us? We can be amazed, we can have wonder at all that is and how we're a part of it, an interdependent, interconnected part of it. We can feel gratitude for the abundance of life and love that the divine infuses us and our world. Then, once we've been through wonder and gratitude, we have to ask ourselves, how do we respond? How do we live? That's the turn towards Yom Kippur. When we are having, having recognized oneness and sovereignty and unity and createdness, we say, well, what about me? Right? We are supposed to be examining our lives, examining our actions and our deeds and our attitudes, really from a whole month before Rosh Hashanah up through Yom Kippur, a period of 40 days, and really taking stock and doing what we call teshuva. Teshuva is a key word for understanding the Jewish high holidays. It's often translated as repentance. That's a, one valence of its meaning, but it it more broadly means, literally means return. It's a return to alignment, a return to relationship with ourselves, with one another, 
with the Holy Blessed One. It's a kind of calling ourselves to account for how we live and how we fall short and how we want to challenge ourselves to do better. And uh, that is a pretty, like, incredible spiritual project. Wonderful. That's what's going on That's these days. Pretty, pretty amazing couple uh, time coming up. And just, just touch on the other sort of major holidays. And I'd love you then to talk a little bit about the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath and what does that mean? Sure. So the annual cycle, which has its climax in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, also has a, a parallel cycle, if that's the right word, um, of the three pilgrimage festivals from the Torah, which are um, Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, which is to say Passover, uh, what's called in English sometimes the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of booth or, Booths or Tabernacles, I think it's called. Um, and right that have origins in the in the annual harvest cycle but also commemorate respectively the liberation from slavery and oppression the giving and receiving of the torah at mount sinai and god's protection of us as we as we uh, wandered and lived in in huts in the wilderness which is a reminder that that's actually still the human condition right that um, as much as we think oh, we have these nice buildings now and uh, we have such a, a wonderful society and all these structures that we like to believe give us security, uh, one thing that we remind ourselves on the high holidays, just before Sukkot, the Feast of Booths comes, a few days later, our lives are actually quite fragile and quite vulnerable. And um, we should incorporate that understanding into how to live. So. There's that annual cycle. Now, you asked me about Shabbat, Sabbath, Shabbat, or in, in Yiddish, Ashkenazi pronunciation, Shabbos. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shabbat or Shabbos is the weekly holiday. Um, so, what is, what is Shabbat? I think that Shabbat is best understood not as a day on its own, but in relation to the six days of the week. They really go together, six days and the Sabbath. Space versus time, right? In the six days, we're very active in the world of space, of doing, of controlling, of improving, of working, the land, working at our jobs, right? Being God's partners in the creation of the world. And on the seventh day, we... We take on a kind of humility or restraint. We stop trying to create and control. We pause to appreciate what is what is, what's created. And to remember that although during the six days of the week, it's never enough. There is brokenness in the world that needs to be repaired. There is creation that needs to be continued. We're still trying to get to Messiah time right, to that world to come, that world that is coming into being. But we can't do that every day. And part of the humility of Shabbat is to say, is to recognize that if I were to spend an extra day a week doing that work, it still wouldn't be done. It's actually quite arrogant to think that, right? Um, And so we need to take that step back. 
We need to restore and recharge ourselves. Rest. Appreciate. Praise. Be in community. In order to go back out into the next six days. Um, but in that rest and that restraint, while we're pausing from the journey towards the world to come, we are actually also experiencing it, a foretaste of it. A world of abundance, a world of community, a world of just being together, right? A world in which conflicts are resolved and are un unfold. Um, a world of more readily available, palpable presence of the divine all around us. It's what we're trying to create on the Sabbath. And so we sometimes misunderstand Shabbat as a time of restriction. Right? There are a lot of laws and like a lot of things that we don't do on Shabbat. So in traditional Judaism, we don't, we don't write, we don't do anything that's like agricultural labor to bring things forth from the ground. Um, we don't engage in commerce, money, you know, the give and take of the busyness of the world. We rest. Those restrictions are not, um, it's not asceticism. It's not some kind of, it's not an end in itself. Those restrictions are actually a way of holding the pressures of the world at bay to allow us to hold open this kind of Shabbat bubble, to rest, to be humble, to appreciate. And we need that because those pressures are so strong. You've been listening to our services, Open Heart Conversations, offering dialogues from the world's religions and spiritual traditions, recorded here at the United Palace of Spiritual Arts. Please visit us in Manhattan or online at upspiritualarts.org. Until next time. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash IMDivine2022. 